This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from AJ+, The Media Matters Minute, The Majority Report, The David Pakman Show, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Daily Show, Democracy Now!, Melissa Harris-Perry, Activism from Fund Texas Choice, and This Week in Blackness. Almost one in three American women will have an abortion at some point in their lives. But even though the Supreme Court made it legal in 1973, states have been having a party with restrictions since then, testing the limits of federal law. States usually allow abortions when life-threatening health issues are involved or in cases of rape or incest. But otherwise, there are a lot of obstacles. Here are some of the biggest ones women face when it comes to getting an abortion as a matter of personal choice. Obstacle number one, age. If you're under 18, lots of states require that a parent gets notified if you want an abortion, and some require that a parent give their consent. In eight states, mom or dad even has to provide a written letter of consent that's been notarized. Going further, several states require that both parents get notified or give consent. But young women who don't want to tell their rents don't have to in these states. Obstacle two, time. Legally, even just a week can make a huge difference. 18 states ban abortion past somewhere between 20 and 26 weeks of pregnancy, which is measured from the date of your last period. Abortions before 13 weeks, the first trimester, are the most common and the least restricted. And abortions past 26 weeks in the third trimester are extremely rare. There are only four known doctors in the country who perform them. Obstacle three, money. The average cost of a first trimester abortion nationwide is $451, but it can range between $300 and $950. If you have private insurance, there's a chance it could cover the procedure. We talked to Dr. Alina Salganikov, Director of Women's Health Policy for the Kaiser Family Foundation. And she said that many states actually force private insurers not to cover abortion. And the best way to find out if your policy does is to ask. On the other hand, women who have Medicaid are covered for an abortion in these 16 states. Elsewhere, some states not only ban Medicaid and private insurers from covering it, they also force Obamacare insurers not to cover abortions either. But there are some other ways to pay. Salganikov said many clinics offer help on a case-by-case basis, and she also mentioned the National Network of Abortion Funds, which helps foot the bill for women who can't afford it. Obstacle four, finding a clinic or doctor. It could be pretty tough to find a clinic if you live in one of these states. Each state has only three abortion providers or less. Elizabeth Nash, who works at the Guttmacher Institute, which collects abortion data, says one of the best resources for finding clinics is the National Abortion Federation hotline. They have a comprehensive list of all abortion providers in the country. Obstacle five, waiting and getting a talking to. In several states, women have to visit a clinic twice, the first time so they can get a lecture, the second time for the actual abortion. In 26 states, women are also required to review state-prepared materials on abortion that may or may not be all that factual, like in Indiana, where a woman is told that the fetus can feel pain before 22 weeks. Women may even be referred to so-called crisis pregnancy centers designed to convince them not to get an abortion. And finally, in 13 states, women need to get an ultrasound before the actual procedure. And in three of those states, women are required to look at the image. As you've probably gathered at this point, it's complicated and confusing, often by design. But broadly speaking, it's hardest to get an abortion in Texas, Mississippi, North Dakota, and South Dakota. 
Who makes it easiest? California, New York, and Washington State. Even just getting the facts on abortion in the U.S. can be an uphill battle. But the more knowledge you have about the laws in your states, the better. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm John Whitehouse. Fox News resident psychiatrist Keith Abloh joined the female co-host of Outnumbered for a discussion about the custody rights of Modern Family star Sofia Vergara's ex-fiance when it comes to frozen embryos. The bottom line is why would a woman's right to decide what to do with a frozen embryo trump a man's right every time? If he wants to bring these embryos to term, good for him. He wants to parent. If he wants to have them adopted, good for him. And, you know, I've been outspoken on this. I think men should be able to veto women's abortions if they're willing to care for the child after it's well, born. The- Media Matters has long documented Ablo's history of using his medical credentials to lend credence to otherwise baseless arguments. In fact, just last year, medical experts contacted by the Associated Press condemned Ablo for his ongoing cable news psychoanalysis of President Obama, Mrs. Obama, and other figures. Let's talk about, I mean, since we were talking about sort of uh, closed-minded, here is Scott Walker explaining, and, it, and it's, it's still unclear to me whether or not um, the Wisconsin law requires a vaginal probe for this ultrasound. Uh, nevertheless, the idea that you would force people uh, to take an ultrasound, government-mandated, is seems like one of those nanny state things, doesn't it? except for it's coming from uh, Scott Walker, he who um, I think he knows he has in his back pocket that $900 million that the Koch brothers are going to push into the thing. I don't know if they'll do full 900, but no one says they're limited to 900 either. So here he is on with the uh, really um, disturbed Dana Loesch. Um, expressing why ultrasounds should be mandatory, ladies and gentlemen. For health reasons? Well, hmm, that's not really true. So, we give you this. 
What place do social issues have in 2016, and why do you think so many Republican candidates are scared of them? They're scared to embrace them. They're scared to get trapped by the media. Well, I think a little bit of it is, is the media it does a gotcha. Uh, mm. uh, some do, at least. I don't I want to say universally, but I think most of them do. Yeah, yeah I think. I mean, <laughs> you're right. Well, I mean, I'll give you an example. I'm, I'm pro-life. Um, you know, I passed pro-life pro -life legislation. We defunded Planned Parenthood. We signed a law that requires an ultrasound, um, which. Think about that. The media tried to make that sound like that was a, a, a crazy yeah. idea. I mean, most people I talk to, whether they're pro-life or not, I, I find people all the time who get out their iPhone and show me a picture of their grandkids' ultrasound and how excited they are. So that's a lovely thing. It's, I think about my sons are Pause 19 it. and 20. Pause it. We should force ultrasound on women because I'm looking at the picture of grandparents who have a picture of their ultrasound. Imagine like someone actually thinks like I I don't know if if he really thinks this is uh the basis of of policy to mandate uh something for people that he has people who come and show their grandchildren pictures you know pictures of their grandchildren so in other words these people weren't forced to get uh ultrasounds these people didn't even get an ultrasound continue we still have their first ultrasound picture. It's just a cool thing out there. We just knew if we signed that law, if we provided the information, mm -hmm. that more people, if they saw that unborn child, would, would make a decision to protect and keep the life uh, of that unborn child. So I don't think, I think where we need to be able to push back as, as someone who's an economic, fiscal, and a social conservative, it shouldn't be the only thing. It shouldn't be defining thing. And that's what I've said in the past. We should make sure that people know us for fiscal and economic uh, strengths as well. But it certainly is a part of who we are, and we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. All right, so first off, you should also know that it is extremely rare that people get abortions after the first trimester for non-health or uh, reasons. Extremely rare. So this is also sort of a, uh, a, a bit of a myth-building on his part, too. The ultrasound's not effective for at least, I think, 20 weeks. Can't see anything. But if we can mandate, you know, some measure of uncomfortability for women and just it's really important that we establish for the sake of grandfathers that we own women's bodies. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. Kenlicia Jones is a 23-year-old woman from Albany, Georgia, 
She took an abortion pill. It resulted in the termination of her pregnancy at five and a half months, and she has now been charged with murder in the state of Georgia. She was ordered held without bond on charges of both murder and possession of a dangerous drug. District Attorney Greg Edwards said he might send the case to a grand jury. There's a local report. According to that report, Jones reportedly took a drug called Cytotec that she bought on the Internet from Canada, then delivered the male fetus in a car as a neighbor drove her to a hospital. The newborn died a short time later. This should be a very, very uh, unusual case to follow. What's the law in Georgia with regard to this? Let's take a look. Uh, the statutory definition of an illegal abortion by administering medicine, drugs, or substance, or using instrument with intent to procure miscarriage or abortion, says partial birth abortion, unlawful except to save the mother's life when that life is physically endangered and no other medical procedure will suffice to save her life. The statutory definition of legal abortion after first trimester requires that it be performed in a licensed hospital or health facility. After the second trimester, it requires a physician and two consulting physicians to certify that it is necessary to preserve life or health of mother. The penalty, imprisonment, one to ten years, partial birth abortion, $5,000, and or imprisonment up to five years. There's really two layers to this story, Lewis. Number one, we can discuss whether these laws make sense, but even under the laws, an illegal abortion does not make it a homicide. So that's really why a lot of people are up in arms. The law does prescribe certain penalties, which can include up to uh, 10 or five years in prison, depending on the particulars and the timing and, and, and the logistics and specifics. But that does not say that law does not say that it is a murder. And that is how it appears. Ms. Jones has been charged here. And this is going to be a, a, a legal battle with huge and far reaching implications. Yeah, I'd like to think that 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 small detail would get sorted out uh, at some point along this process. And I imagine if if, you know, there will be appeals if things don't go, uh, you know, the way she wants them to. Uh, it could go, you know, this could go on for quite some time, but it seems that someone in Georgia has, uh, it just seems like a very uh, vindictive and uh, malicious thing to, to do here. And layer two of this story is that if we looked into the specifics of the context and the background and looked more into Albany, Georgia, I would guess that we would find that this entire situation could have been prevented by some combination of, at some point in this 23-year-old's life, of easier to access or cheaper health care and contraception, better sex education at some point in this woman's life. All of the things we've talked about, we know that passing laws, making abortion statutorily against the law, won't stop abortion. We've said it time and again, and if anything, this story confirms that. Stop, you know we can't stop, can't stop, you know.
In 2010, Republicans took over the North Carolina legislature for the first time since the 19th century. And then two years later, in 2012, they got the trifecta. Republican state House, Republican state Senate, and they hoped Republican governor. But the Republican candidate for governor in North Carolina, Pat McCrory, he wanted to assure, wanted to assure people in, in that fairly purple state that even if they elected him, even if they gave the whole state government to the Republican Party, the state, you know, wouldn't go off a cliff and become like completely 700 club Republican crazy, right? Pat McCrory wanted to be seen as a businessman, as a pragmatic guy, as a former mayor of the state's largest city. He specifically wanted everybody to know in North Carolina that he wasn't one of these fire-breathing Republicans on right-wing social issues. He didn't care about that stuff. He said specifically on abortion that he would refuse to sign anything as governor that would restrict abortion in that state. If he got elected, he would refuse to sign any new abortion restrictions. If you're elected governor, what further restrictions on abortion would you agree to sign? I'll start with you, Mr. McCrory. None. All right. <laughs> can't, really ask, can't really do a follow-up for that one. He didn't say nine. He said none. I would agree to sign no further restrictions on abortion. Next question. Well, guess what happens next? <laughs> he gets the governorship, and six months after he gets sworn in, Governor Pat McCrory signs a new bill restricting access to abortion in North Carolina. Ta-da! Although after signing that one, he did bring a plate of cookies to pro-choice activists who were protesting outside his governor's mansion at the time. So that made it all better. Cookies always do. Well, now, again today, uh, Governor Pat McCrory is set to sign another anti-abortion bill in North Carolina. This latest one imposes a mandatory 72-hour waiting period on women who want to get an abortion in the state. There's no medical reason for that at all. It's one of the longest waiting periods in the country. The new bill also forces abortion providers to hand over to the state government detailed records of the abortions that they do, including, literally, your ultrasounds. They have to be sent to Pat McCrory now, to the state government. Your doctor has to hand over those records of your abortion because what? There's somebody in North Carolina state government reading these medical scans for some governmental purpose. But they go in the file. We're keeping them. Small government. So Pat McCrory, Mr. I will sign no new restrictions on abortion, is about to sign a second round of new restrictions on abortion. That is happening tonight. But also in North Carolina tonight, we are still waiting on something that was too creepy even for Pat McCrory. Uh, North Carolina Republicans are trying to pass a bill over Governor McCrory's veto, which would let public officials refuse to marry couples in that state uh, on the basis of their own personal religious objections. So if a county magistrate objects to your marriage on religious grounds of any kind, then too bad for you, that magistrate doesn't have to give you a license. It's supposed to be an anti-gay bill, but it's actually broad enough in its language, that it would also let local officials block marriages between people of different religions or divorced people or even interracial marriages. Anything some local official said was contrary to his or her religious beliefs, they could use as the basis to say no to your request for a marriage license. So Governor McCrory vetoed this thing. Republicans in the Senate already overrode that veto. Republicans in the House are apparently now waiting for some of their absent members to return to the state capitol so they too can take a vote to override the veto and pass this law that would put North Carolina back in the business of letting local officials block interracial marriages. 
One of the Republicans they've been waiting on for this vote is apparently Representative Craig Horn. Uh, and he's been away in London, specifically because he was attending a convention of Winston Churchill enthusiasts. Uh, he's now come back from his Churchill conference. Uh, and this is how, as he's talking to the local press, this is how he's been describing his principled Churchillian stand on the North Carolina marriage law that they've been waiting on him to vote for. He says this, quote, as I try to do all the time, I wait until the very last minute to make my final decision. Winston Churchill would be proud. And North Carolina, your fate is in his hands. But never is a promise and you can't afford to lie. You may know GoDaddy.com as a place to go to register a domain name for your website, but they have got a lot more going on right now. Introducing their Get Online Today Toolkit. You can now get a domain name, build a personal or business website using their themes, and get personalized email powered by Microsoft Office 365. And for a limited time, this Get Online Today toolkit starts at just $1 per month with the purchase of an annual plan. And the cost of web hosting? Totally free. Plus, GoDaddy provides award-winning phone and chat support 24-7, so if you have a problem or need help figuring out what products are right for your website or business, just call. Check it out at GoDaddy.com slash left. That's GoDaddy.com slash left. The domain is included only with annual plans. See site for details. The right to an attorney is enshrined in our Constitution, which means it's got to be good. But one state is taking it in a, a very interesting direction, as Jessica Williams reports. America's justice system isn't always perfect, and constitutional liberties, like the right to a lawyer, often fall through the cracks. But now one state is tackling the problem head-on, Alabama civil rights attorney Julian McPhillips. Everyone deserves a right to a fair trial. Right, exactly deserves that right, but whether they get it is a whole other thing. That's why in July, Alabama passed HB 494 in an effort to level the playing field. HB 494 sets aside money uh, for an attorney appointed by the law to protect the interests of the person to whom, or on whose benefit they're appointed. You sort of defend the defenseless. I certainly do. You know, when did Alabama become such a bastion for civil rights? Well, much more so than you realize. Really? I thought your state bird was like the electric chair. <laughs> <laughs> but some people don't like justice, like the Alabama ACLU, who recently filed suit against the new law. We feel that this law is completely unconstitutional. This law is about politicians and abortion politics. Whoa, lady, who said anything about a bobos? We don't call it a bobos down here. Oh, yeah, I mean, neither do we. I was just playing. Then she told me who the law really defends. HB 494 allocates state funds to pay for lawyers to represent fetuses. I'm sorry, I think I misheard you. The judge appoints an attorney for the fetus. What? what, what? In the state of Alabama, a teen needs parental consent to get an abortion. If she can't get that consent, she can go to the court. Now with this new law, the court can appoint an attorney for the fetus and actually put the teen on trial. Oh, so McPhillips is fighting for the rights of the not yet born. You get a call from a fetus seeking legal representation. Then what happens? I cannot get a call from a fetus for anything, much less legal representation. So how do you mean confidentiality with your client? 
Well, of course, if you got an unborn child in somebody else's womb, I cannot communicate with them directly. You know better than to ask the question. Well, I don't know. You have a crazy-ass job, sir. I don't know what's in the realm of possibility and what's in the realm of not possible. But I still had a lot of questions. How do you know if a fetus is innocent? I think it's a safe assumption that most fetuses, if not all fetuses, are innocent. What about a fetus that eats his own twin in utero? Well, you know, that would never happen. And it's a real thing. A fetus can eat its twin in utero. If that doesn't sound evil, then what is? Well, it's probably one in one billion if it ever happens like that. It happens one out of like 88 multi-fetal pregnancies. It makes a conscious choice to gobble up its twin and you're just going to let him walk? Well, you know, you're, you're playing the theater of the absurd. Maybe I was being a little absurd. After all, Alabama's legal system clearly has the interests of the pregnant minor at heart. Just listen. The fetus attorney can call in witnesses like the boyfriend, the boyfriend's mother, the employer, the basketball coach, her pastor, anyone they want to testify against her. And then in the end, if the um, teen is allowed to access an abortion, the fetus lawyer can appeal and run out the clock. And if they do that, we've got a parent. Oh, that's how babies are made in Alabama. And McPhillips assured that these court proceedings are carried out with the utmost sensitivity. I speak to the unborn child's mother, and I may show her some figurines even of how far along, you know, her baby would look like. Oh, what is that? This is human life. Oh, thank God. I thought you were trying to get me to buy chocolate to support your basketball team. This is what uh, the unborn child looks like uh, at 12 weeks. It's feeling like this, like, hey. Well, I'm glad to, that you see the baby is being cute. Oh, yeah, but I also thought the alien and alien was cute, so. So it's safe to say Alabama is committed to protecting the unborn no matter what the cost. The state of Alabama is broke. We don't have a statewide public defender system. And to take money away from that, away from the needs of people trying to navigate that system to represent fetuses is insulting. It's particularly insulting to women. So there are people out there who really need help. There are a lot of people in Alabama that need a good attorney that can't afford one. Hmm. I know a guy who can help. Okay, so here's a fetus. He's 220 months gestation. His life may get cut short because he doesn't have access to a fair trial. With all due respect to your comedy, in reality, no grown man is a fetus. Oh, he has a heartbeat. He can feel pain. Well, he's not a fetus. Well, there you have it. If you can't afford an attorney, Alabama has got your back until the day you're born. We spoke earlier this week about this story. 23-year-old Kenlicia Jones was charged with murder after taking an abortion pill that she bought from a Canadian pharmacy, which resulted in the termination of her pregnancy at the five and a half month mark. We talked yesterday about how, well, she was charged with murder, but the law does not prescribe 
that uh, late term abortion or abortions done outside of the care of a medical professional, that they are murder. There are criminal pen penalties prescribed, but not murder. And finally, the district attorney in Georgia has come around on this, saying that the murder charges have been dismissed and she has been released from jail. Quote from the Dougherty County District Attorney Jones had been charged by the Albany Police Department for the offense of malice murder. However, this morning I dismissed that malice murder warrant after thorough legal research by myself and my staff led to the conclusion that Georgia law presently does not permit prosecution of Ms. Jones for any alleged acts relating to the end of her pregnancy. Obvious. I mean, the, it's great that by the time we even finished producing yesterday's show, uh, within only an hour or two, this announcement came out. The law clearly didn't say that what she had done warranted a murder charge and the DA figuring that out, I guess, relatively quickly. But they are saying that there is no prosecution possible related to this. So it seems like they are saying that not only is, is murder off the table, but any other charge would be as well. Yeah, I'm not. I think what they meant was prosecution under malice murder, because the law okay. that we read yesterday very clearly does say that you can go, you can be fined and or serve prison time for uh, uh, un unauthorized or, or I guess unsupervised or late term abortions, except for certain situations. And we could talk more about those laws. What I want to circle back to, though, is I suggested yesterday that lack of access to or education about birth control, abortion services, family planning services were probably a factor. And we have every indication that that's true. Kurt from Georgia emailed in and said, yeah, Albany, Georgia is indeed very, very rural, which we know is a problem when when accessing family planning services of all kinds. And reproductive rights advocates said there was no abortion clinic nearby and that they were disturbed by reports that the county prosecutors were considering a murder charge here. So the right legal decision for sure. Let's not get confused about what types of solutions we should be looking for in these situations. We should be acting pragmatically and based on what evidence tells us would prevent any abortion and late term abortions as well, which is sex education, access to birth control, all of the things we've talked about. This case really makes that clear. But David, if you start teaching young kids about sex, they're going to have it. Don't you know that? And sex is, is the devil. That's right. I forgot that if you teach young kids not to have sex, they don't have it. That's it. Just open and shut. Tides go in. Tides go out. Very, very clear. You know, I, I, I forgot about that. I'm trumped up now with these EAs out to make power plays. Steady giving out them holidays. They gotta acknowledge me. Cause living in the world, no different from a jail. If it ain't no big difference, I might as well stay on my grizzly and the fuck out of jail. Stop snitching. I'm sorry, not until. We end today's show with a look at the latest restrictions on reproductive rights in the United States. In Texas, a federal appeals court Tuesday upheld anti-choice provisions which threatened to leave Texas with just 10 or fewer abortion clinics. In 2013, when the sweeping anti-choice law passed despite popular protest and an 11-hour filibuster by Texas State Senator Wendy Davis, Texas had more than 40 clinics. 
Since then, more than half of them have closed as a battle over access has raged in the courts. Now, a decision by a panel of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals threatens to shutter about half of the remaining 18 clinics. The ruling upholds restrictions forcing abortion facilities to meet the standards of hospital-style surgery centers and forcing providers to obtain admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. It provides narrow exemptions for a single doctor at a clinic in the South Texas city of McAllen on the grounds that forcing women to travel 235 miles or more to the nearest clinic would be an undue burden. But it remains unclear if the clinic can stay open. When it came to the plight of women in the far west city, Texas city of El Paso, the appeals court said they could travel to New Mexico rather than take the estimated 1,000-mile round-trip journey to the nearest open abortion clinic in Texas. If the decision goes into effect in about 20 days, attorneys for the clinics have said about 900,000 reproductive-age women will live more than 150 miles from the nearest open abortion facility. The clinics plan to take their appeal to the Supreme Court. In a statement, Nancy Northup of the Center for Reproductive Rights said, quote, not since before Roe v. Wade has a law or court decision had the potential to devastate access to reproductive health care on such a sweeping scale, unquote. Meanwhile, in Florida, Governor Rick Scott has signed a bill into law forcing women to wait at least 24 hours to have an abortion. And the Wisconsin State Senate has just approved a bill that would ban abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy. Like similar bans in other states and a federal ban passed by the U.S. House last month. The bill's based on the medically debunked claim fetuses can feel pain after 20 weeks. It does not provide exceptions for rape or incest. Find out more about the impact of these restrictions. We're going right to Texas, to Austin, to speak with Heather Busby, executive director of NARAL Pro-Choice Texas. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Heather. Start in Texas. What has taken place there? So over the past few years, we've seen a couple of things happen. I want to back up first to 2011 when the legislature cut funding for family planning by nearly two-thirds, and we've lost over 80, that's eight zero family planning clinics across the state, most of those in rural and underserved areas. So you can't prevent pregnancy, and then you have an unintended pregnancy, and the state has devastated that access as well. Like you said, we've lost more than half of the clinics in the state, and we're looking at going down to only eight to 10 clinics for a state that has 27 million people. That is just unacceptable, and we're already already seeing long wait times, women who are forced further along into their pregnancy, which further jeopardizes their health and safety, the exact opposite of what the you know purported intent of this law was. We all know that was a farce, that this was really about making abortion completely inaccessible. And we know that that most impacts those who are the most vulnerable in the state, low-income people, young women, people who live in rural areas are so hard hit by this law. And what will, what will this mean, Heather, for if you could just lay out practically, what do these restrictions now mean for someone wanting to get an abortion, a woman wanting to get an abortion in Texas? Could you lay out what she would have to do? So, you know, I can speak to my experience in actually talking to people who are struggling to access abortion care. And, you know, first of all, there's there's getting the money together, and that can often take weeks. And then trying to get an appointment at a clinic. And you have to go actually twice to a clinic, once for the mandatory state-written materials where the doctors basically have to lie to their patients, and then and for the forced sonogram. And then 24 hours later, if you can get 
an appointment 24 hours later, you have to then go back to the clinic for your procedure. Um, for some people, that can often mean uh, multiple trips, uh, multiple overnight trips, if they have a two-day procedure, for example. Um, so it's really a, a burden on folks because you know you're losing time from work, time away from your children and your family, trying to get transportation. And in Texas, you know, this is the second largest state. If you're out in West Texas, where there's no public transportation infrastructure, if you don't have reliable transportation, if you can't get a ride, you have no access at all. This abortion may as well be illegal for you. I want to ask about one of the responses to the recent legislation on HB2 in Texas. The anti-choice group Texas Right to Life wrote, quote, Although unpredictable, the Supreme Court could solidify Texas's pro-life protections while concomitantly strengthening pro-life laws for every state by defining clearer standards of the notion of undue burden, the vague term upon which the abortion industry founded their legal opposition to HB2, unquote. Heather, could you respond and also explain the concept of undue burden? Right. Yeah, you know, I find that statement particularly cruel. They want to define undue burden as no burden is too great. Um, and, you know, what I've seen is the exact opposite of that for people who are struggling to put foods in, in their children's mouths, uh, struggling to access the reproductive health care that they need, or just health care in general. Keep in mind, Texas has refused to expand Medicaid. We have the highest uninsured rate in the country. So, you know, to, to say that they want the Supreme Court to basically define undue burden as, you know, no burden is too great. You know, the one thing I will agree is that I I would like to see a little more judicial clarity when it comes to undue burden. That standard is is quite unclear. It's it's definitely an exception when you look at uh, constitutional jurisprudence to have such a nebulous concept as undue burden. And you know, unfortunately, the Fifth Circuit is one of those courts that's very conservative, very um, ideologically conservative, and makes their decisions fit that mindset. And for them, you know, I was actually surprised that 235 miles they considered undue burden. I think 100 miles is too far. And, you know, especially if you don't have access to transportation, you don't have money, you can't miss work, you know, you've got children at home. The the, the burdens of all of these laws cumulatively are, are insurmountable for so many people in this state and across the country. So, you know, I, I really wish that the courts would have a little more compassion for the struggles of everyday people's lives. Forty-two years after Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion, efforts to restrict access to that legal right have reached new depths. According to the reproductive rights organization, the Guttmacher Institute, just since April, five states have either instituted waiting periods or increased the amount of time women are required to wait between the initial consultation and receiving a termination. It is part of the steady course of legislative action that in recent years has made abortion in some states, though still legal, very difficult to obtain.
Last week, a federal appellate court upheld a strict Texas law that requires all abortion clinics in the state to meet the same building equipment and staffing standards that hospitals must meet. Before the law was passed, there were 41 abortion clinics in Texas. According to reproductive rights activists, full enforcement of the law could reduce the number of clinics in the country's second most populous state to less than a dozen. And that has prompted them to consider a surprising tactic. As the New York Times reports, abortion rights groups have been leery in recent years of taking their battles to the increasingly conservative Supreme Court. But this week, faced with the full effect of what they call an onerous 2013 Texas law, they say they have little choice but to press for strong action from the top. Joining me here at the table, Caroline Fredrickson, president of the American Constitution Society for Law and Policy, and Rebecca Traster, senior editor for The New Republic. And joining me from Richmond, Virginia, Amy Hagstrom-Miller, the chief executive of Whole Woman's Health, which runs several facilities in Texas and was one of the providers that sued the state. So, Amy, let me start with you. I'm somewhat stunned that anyone could look at this new law and see it as not creating a burden. Um, what's your reaction? I couldn't agree with you more, Melissa. Um, this is the most restrictive law around physical plants in the state, in the, in the country. Um, they gave us no waivers, they gave us no variances, and they gave us no grandfathering to allow existing facilities serving the communities to stay open um, throughout the state of Texas. So you've seen us go from 41 clinics down to what's likely to be eight ambulatory surgical centers, really closing every clinic in the state and only allowing small hospital facilities to be open. And as you know, they're only located in major metropolitan areas, leaving almost a million women of reproductive age more than 150 miles away from a safe facility. We were just talking a little bit about this march that's happening right now about the closing of rural hospitals. And so I'm mm -hmm. sitting here thinking, okay, so if rural hospitals are closed, and then if we have the closing of these facilities, the capacity of women to get reproductive care and to, to, to seek terminations, for, particularly for those living in rural areas, and who do not have um, substantial economic uh, means, I mean, it really makes it basically impossible. Absolutely. It's a sham law. It's not, it's not based on safety and health for women. What it's done is leave a, a huge proportion of women in the state of Texas behind. Rural women, women without access um, to health care, women who don't, don't have means. We already have a broken infrastructure in Texas when it comes to family planning, um, Medicaid coverage, and access to health care in general. And then here it's just, it's just layering on top of that a disproportionate effect for almost a million people, like I said, who are just left behind. Um, and they try to to pretend that it has something to do with health and safety when in fact it's actually designed to, to make abortion inaccessible by any means necessary. So Caroline, you know, your work is obviously around the question of law and we, you know, I look at the Goop marker chart over and over again and the idea that between 2001 and 2010 you have 189 restrictions passed in states and then in the two years from 2011 to 13 you get 205, so more in those two years. Yeah. You know, typically we would think that that's responsive to some kind of emergent situation in the world where you would suddenly need more laws. Why is this happening? Well, you know, I think at this point the right has decided they're just going to test the limits as much as they can mm -hmm. of what is left of Roe versus Wade. You know, in the Casey case, the Supreme Court said that uh, restrictions could not be an undue burden on women's choice. And so the question is, where does that line fall? Mm -hmm. And right now, what the Fifth Circuit said is it falls pretty much on the side of 
it doesn't matter if you have access to abortion. That's not undue. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's completely, they're trying to dismantle Roe piece by piece mm -hmm. and get to the point where there's really no options left for women, rural women, women with little means. If you're a wealthy woman, well, I guess you can fly to New York or somewhere mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. But for the rest of the women, there's really nothing left. And, you know, I guess, Rebecca, part of... Part of what I'm wondering then is, you know, when we look at the 2011 to 2013, that Guttmacher, we know what happened there, right? These are state-based restrictions. So despite having a Democrat in the White House, despite having, at that point, a Democratic Senate, the states we know in 2010 went to Republicans and in the backside of that, these huge restrictions. How do we make sure in 2016 that this issue is on that no matter what happens at the presidential level, this issue is on the agenda. Well, it does matter what happens in the presidential election yeah. because our shared anxiety over turnout sure. is what is what makes <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly, yes, states, right, right, right. right, right yes. And so you have, I mean, there are real, historically, uh, you know, there's not a huge amount of reason for optimism, right? This is, uh, you know, th there's a very good chance that unless there's a massive Democratic turnout, you're going to see more Republican state legislatures enacting even more until Roe basically doesn't exist, which it barely does at this point anyway. Well, I would say there's another element, though, which is at, at stake in the next election, which is the court. The court yeah, itself. Right. Yes. And there are um, four more el on the elderly side, and it will be really one of the issues in contention. And, and Hillary made sure to mention that in the speech mm -hmm. yesterday. Yeah, she right. mentioned that Supreme Court. Right. The court is his central. So let me come back to you for a, a moment here, Amy. And that is to say, mm -hmm. for the most part, advocates of reproductive rights had not wanted to take this to this court. Um, is this now the time that it has to go to SCOTUS? I think absolutely, Melissa. As you can tell, we haven't gotten any relief from the Fifth Circuit. This is the fourth time they've denied us in the Fifth Circuit, and we've gotten some relief from the Supreme Court. Already in this case, based on this evidence that we've put forward, the Supreme Court has ruled in our favor, saying that, there, that it was emergent enough to put a block in place in order to protect the women and families in the state of Texas and, and maintain access. And so we are fairly optimistic that the Supreme Court is definitely going to um, look at this and, and is going to look at it carefully and hopefully provide relief um, to the communities that need us in the state. I took a tour to Texas And from Waco I called you For day by day no answer And the big blue bonnet blue I'm singing and they're dancing But I'm feeling big deep bad I'm Sweetwater Pete And I'm Texas City sad keeps me living but have you heard the news there's a sad song singer coming with the rock of billy blue you've reached the activism portion of today's show now that you're informed and angry here's what you can do about it today's activism fight back texas with fund texas choice with 35% of U.S. women of reproductive age living in a county without an abortion provider, Texas is certainly not the only area where the phrase undue burden applies. However, Texas has a special set of problems that deserve special attention. They are the largest state by population with nearly 27 million people. They have the highest percentage of uninsured adults. And when you're talking about impending clinic closures, the sheer size of the state, second only to the gargantuan Alaska. Alaska compounds the problem by putting clinics literally out of reach for millions and creates an immediate crisis for those able to become pregnant in Texas. 
Here's the thing. This stuff is super complicated, but the possible results are clear. So here are the basics. Thanks to the highly political Fifth Circuit Court, unless the Supreme Court steps in with an emergency stay, half of the remaining clinics in Texas will close again. And this is not their first rodeo. Their clinic numbers were already dwindling due to previous closures. Depending on whether a couple of them can comply with a handful of specific provisions within the law, HB2, on July 1st, there will be only eight to 10 clinics remaining to serve the entire state, which is gigantic, remember? With none in the expansive western half and likely no abortion provider at the clinic in the Rio Grande Valley should it remain open at all. Patients who were already having to travel hundreds of rural miles will now be competing for appointments with city residents or going out of state at great expense. Clinics in New Mexico and Oklahoma are the next closest options, 500 miles from Central West Texas and 200 miles from Dallas-Fort Worth, respectively. With overnight stays required due to ultrasound, mandatory counseling, and waiting period laws, a trip for even a simple five-minute first-trimester procedure, or even just an appointment to obtain the abortion pill, easily becomes a four- or five-day trip with all the expenses of travel, time off work, and childcare. Fund Texas Choice is the abortion fund dedicated to helping patients navigate and afford the logistical challenges of accessing this vital medical care. They already send over one-third of their clients out of state, sometimes costing thousands of dollars just in travel. You can lessen the burden and increase their ability to help bridge these gaps by donating at fundtexaschoice.org and following them on Twitter at fundtexaschoice. Their Texas Abortion Clinic map has an updated list of clinics that are open and or providing abortion care. They also link to the organizations that help patients fund procedures, such as the Lilith Fund, T-Fund, and West Fund. You can also give directly to Whole Woman's Health, the independent clinic chain spearheading many of the lawsuits attempting to overturn harmful laws at wholewomanshealth.com under the Abortion Care Financial Assistance tab. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If helping those in immediate need access a constitutional right matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about Fund Texas Choice via social media so that others in your network can help too. Activism. out from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance aids obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations the spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage HB2 is that massive piece of legislation that was passed in Texas back in 2013 after Senator Wendy Davis's rather heroic filibuster. Um, the measure includes all sorts of restrictions, you know, rules requiring doctors to maintain admitting privileges at local hospitals, even though a abortion is a very safe procedure. So there aren't that many complications warranting hospital admission. And B, we live in, we live in the 21st century where you go to the damn hospital and then whoever's at the hospital will treat you for whatever the hell reason you're there for. 
Second, the 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 bill includes um it includes a twenty week abortion ban, which was not challenged in court, so that's just out there being just unconstitutional as fuck. It also includes requirements that abortion clinics uh, retrofit their facilities to be in line with standards required for ambulatory surgical centers. So essentially abortion clinics, which perform medication abortion, which you don't need any sort of surgical equipment for anyway, because it's just pills and be surgical abortions, which have a complication rate of like negative. It, the complication rate is less than like 2%. I, I, I feel safe saying it's less than 2%. Um, within the first trimester, which is when about 90 something percent of abortions occur, the, the complication rate is less than 1%. But they want all these clinics to pay, to pay millions and millions of dollars to retrofit themselves to be, you know, able to handle shit like heart surgery and brain surgery because by doing so, a lot of these clinics will close because they don't have millions and millions of dollars to retrofit. At any rate, this particular law has been bounced back and forth in federal courts for a couple of years now. Um, and the Fifth Circuit, just ruled, uh, the Fifth Circuit just ruled that all of the restrictions that were being challenged in this particular lawsuit, it was admitting privileges and the ambulatory surgical center requirement, which I just mentioned means that the clinics have to retrofit themselves. Um, all of those provisions can be upheld throughout the state of Texas, it, with the exception of one doctor working at one particular clinic in West Texas does not have to get admitting privileges, and one particular clinic does not have to retrofit itself as long as it remains the only clinic in the area. So basically, if another clinic opens, then they'll have to retrofit themselves. The law is horseshit. There are legislators on record. There are literally legislators on record saying that the purpose of this bill, of the provisions in this bill were, the purpose was to shut down clinics. But, you know, they were able to say enough about health and safety and we care about women to the point where the Fifth Circuit, which is one of, which is one of the most conservative circuit, if not the most conservative circuit courts of appeal in the country, Upheld it in a, in an opinion that frankly makes very little sense. I read it. It's hostile to, I mean, it's openly hostile to abortion rights. It was openly hostile to the plaintiffs who sued, um, Whole Woman's Health is a clinic run by Amy Haksha Miller, who I've met. She's amazing. She's doing, honestly, some of the most inspirational work in Texas. All of the people who work at her clinics, all abortion providers generally, but specifically in Texas where they have been under siege for the past couple of years, trying to maintain um, you know, their doors open so that they, they can service the 5.4 million people who, um, you know, are of reproductive age in Texas. So thanks to the Fifth Circuit, which does what the Fifth Circuit always does, which is horse shit. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, that's a legal term. Um, now we, I think Texas will be down to eight clinics for the entire state. I believe. A couple of few years ago, there were as many as 40 clinics, um, but it's unclear how many of those 40 clinics ended up closing because of HB2 or not. That's sort of um, something that is kind of hard to measure. But in, the, the point is, is that there are literally eight clinics in the entire state. Now, I don't know if you've been to Texas or seen Texas on a map, but it's a really, really, really big state. It's big. It's a very, very big state. And according to these, these, these uh, justices, if you have to drive for... Anywhere between like two and a half and three and a half hours to get an abortion, that's okay. Now, mind you, with all of the other regulations and restrictions in Texas, going driving that three hours oftentimes means taking up to four days off of work because there's the waiting period and then you have to go do all this counseling shit and then you have to go and get the ultrasound and you have to get the ultrasound at least 24 hours before the abortion. They have made it very, 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 very difficult. 
to get an abortion in Texas if you want one. So, and also, and mind you, Texas is not exactly on the, uh, the whole contraception for everyone tip, nor are they on the faith, the, uh, science-based, uh, sex, sex education. So they're an abstinence-only state, hmm. which, you know, kids, kids are gonna be fucking. And it's probably better if you teach them about what happens if they do than if you try and scare them off from doing it and then don't tell them about contraception and other shit that's going to help them, A, stay disease-free, and B, keep keep unwanted pregnancies out of their damn stomach. Their stomach. <laughs> like, like babies are in your stomach. You know what I mean, America. Yes. The, uter- the uterus. Keep the babies out the uterus through actual science and medical procedures but no, not the Fifth Circuit, because the Fifth Circuit, I mean, literally, there are justices on the Fifth Circuit that have openly said that they want the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. So they have crafted opinion that is so ludicrous. I mean, it's really, really ludicrous to take this challenge to this law and say, OK, well, it's applicable except for this one clinic and this one dude who works at this one clinic. It's just the opinion is nonsense. It's uh, Casey over in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, it's been a long time since I called in. Been a fan of the show. Stopped listening for a while, but been listening to your last couple of episodes. And just got done with the, the legalization of marijuana one. You know, and I wanted to raise a, an interesting point because I think your show and a lot of the shows that talk about this, I think um, the facts are out there. They're, they're, I think everyone's read them and everyone understands them. I wonder if the legalization of marijuana, though, is kind of in this weird, uh, kind of like segregated universe from a lot of the other issues that are out there. Because I really believe, and this is just my firm heart of hearts, that the majority of the country, including a lot of conservatives, really believe that legalization of marijuana is acceptable. But I think that they believe that in the privacy of their own homes. I think, uh, very similar to the idea of gay marriage or whatever, that the legalization of marijuana is okay. I'm going to use myself as a great example. I firmly believe. I'm not a user of marijuana. It's not my thing. But I firmly believe that those who would like to have at it, you know. But I can't necessarily voice that in my social media circles or my social circles because I don't want my employers who may or may not agree with that or have their own social stigma to worry about. I don't want them to to necessarily uh, see that or, or get any repercussion from that. Because again, I'm not a user, but given that it is still illegal, I don't want someone thinking that I am, therefore potentially having repercussions on my job. In the same regard, I totally am okay with anyone who wants to and feel that we tax the hell out of it. It would solve a lot of our ills in terms of budget crises and things like that. So I just think it's interesting because it's one of these topics where alone people, uh, I think people are, are more than willing to talk about it, but in their social circles, I think they're scared to. 
because of the repercussions that might come. So that is my two cents. Um, again, been a long-time listener. Really glad to be back listening again, and uh, I hope you have a great one, Jay. Bye. Hey, Jay, it's Dylan from Fort Lewis, Texas. Uh, I just want to add on to what Wade was talking about, the uh, Cleveland officer who fired 49 rounds. He mentioned how many rounds that is, but he doesn't really mention how long of a shoot that is. Shooting that many rounds, if you're shooting effectively and aim shots, it's one or two rounds a second, that'll take 25 to 30 seconds. Those are aim shots. If you're shooting for 30 seconds straight, you are making a deliberate decision. What I think is more likely is that the officer was firing as many rounds as he can, he probably pull off 49 rounds in about 15 seconds. Now, just to give you an idea of what this is like related to the military, for an M4 carbine, the uh, semi-automatic maximum rate of fire is 45 rounds a minute. So this guy probably put off about the same amount of rounds that a carbine uses in about a quarter of the time. There's no chance that those were aimed. And how somebody can end up doing something like this, when you get into a firefight, especially if you're not used to it, or if you are amped up and have the adrenaline flowing, time seems to slow down. So he may have been thinking he was taking more time between shots. I'm not saying this justifies his actions, but it's an interesting little quirk of what happens when you're in a, uh, in a kinetic fight. There are a couple books about it that really go in, in depth. They're called On Combat and On Killing. It really goes into the psychological stuff of what happens in your brain when you actually are shooting at someone or killing someone. It's kind of a grotesque topic, but hey, it's out there. So thanks for what you do. Uh, have a good day. Bye. Hey, Jay. Chris from Colorado Springs. Um, I was calling to respond to a couple of things. First of all, I want to uh, thank Elka for her clarity and uh, very great points, as usual, when she calls in. I always learn something when she calls. And, you know, um, with what you asked at the end of the last episode, my son goes to a Montessori school, and um, my wife and I, I love it for him. It's really great. Or he's kind of an introverted kid, and a lot of times at, at other schools, kids are kind of forced to play that extrovert role that society expects a lot of people to play. And my little guy, you know, he, he prefers to sit in the corner and read books or, or play quietly with a, with a couple of close friends. And they really foster that in him. And, and I, I think it's great. I haven't been trained in it personally as a teacher, but Elka brings up a great point that, that there's a ton of really good teachers out there working in a not-so-great system, but doing the absolute best they can. And, you know, it can get a little depressing sometimes talking about education, but it's definitely not all bad. The other reason I called was your last foreign policy episode. You know, I didn't hear any of the clips talk about it, maybe because it's nobody's talking about it, but I heard Dan Carlin talk about it once on Common Sense, and it still makes the most sense to me. And it's still a radical idea when, when dealing with ISIS. But I think we should just let them govern. I agree with this idea of Dan Carlin's. Like, if they want to be a state, let them be a state. You know, especially because the stakeholders in that region... If they want to fight it, they should be doing the majority of fighting. They should be providing all the money. They should be doing that. But if, but if the people there would rather see these extremists or freedom fighters or whatever you want to call them move in and replace the horrible government they've been living under, and they welcome them, more or less, and there's some brutality, yes, and that's awful, but let them build roads. Let them build schools. It might be a very regressive, backward state, but if they want to be a state, let them try and if their ideology is so poisonous, as everybody thinks it is, that it's such a threat to humanity, generally, unless 
you know, you're dealing with something so insular as North Korea, those states tend to fail. And all we're going to do, as was said in your clips over and over again, is create a failed state. Like Chris Hayes said, what are you going to do afterwards? Once we go in and take care of these guys, then what? And I think the idea is just kind of, you know, backing off, being non-interventionalist and saying, all right, look, you guys want to go? Go ahead. And then securing our borders, of course, and making sure that American citizens are as protected on our own shores as they possibly can be and to put our resources there. Um, maybe there's some glaring hole in the, the logic of this, I know that the idea and the ideology behind a caliphate is that it needs to constantly expand. So then kind of creating borders and being self-governing within those borders is might be, you know, a, a pipe dream that they might not ever do. But if we set up, we, if the people in the area, the stakeholders, set up firm enough borders to say, you cross this, you get bombed, maybe we could force them to try to govern and see how that goes for them. Anyway, I just didn't hear anybody else talk about that, and if, if, if you have a comment on that, or if, if people think it's crazy, I, you know, Dan Carlin said it once, I was like, you know, that kind of makes sense, aside from, you know, in the same breath, the untold suffering that would come to people who are just innocent victims of that going on, but it's like, who the hell are we to say that, because when we go in and liberate countries, we create untold deaths and, and suffering as well, so there you go. Anyway, thanks, Jay. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to j at bestoftheleft.com or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. Now, I don't have like a real big idea to share today, but I got lots of little ones. So we'll go through everything that was talked about in the voicemails. Uh, First of all, I totally agree that there's a social stigma surrounding, you know, supporting legalization of marijuana. So here's my list of, you know, from least controversial to most controversial ways to talk about supporting legalization. First of all, it's fiscally conservative to legalize because not only does it cost a lot of money to put all those people in prison, uh, you know, if people are buying all that pot anyways, we might as well get some tax revenue from it, right? Uh, second of all, we're putting a whole lot of kids in jail. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how it's going to work out, but it doesn't seem like it could be a good thing to have that many people in prison. Thirdly, it's implemented in a racist way. Now, judge your audience on this one. Uh, it's obviously true, but if you're talking to a racist uh, or someone who uh, doesn't think that racism still exists, then you may want to be careful on that one. Um, <laughs> now we're getting real controversial. Uh, the uh, war on drugs is the new Jim Crow. Again, it's clearly true. You should read the evidence on it, uh, read the book about it. A lot of people are, are not going to like that one. Uh, and, and then finally, I want to get high. That one, you're really going to want to keep inside the circle of trust. And then in the second voicemail, we were hearing about the cops and the shooting 49 rounds and what that's actually like to experience, you know, not as a, as a cop, but as a human. What's, what's it like as a human to shoot 49 rounds? And, you know, I have no problem at all humanizing police and recognizing the humanity of a person and, and kind of acknowledging what is going through their heads because, I mean, you have to understand stuff like that in order to fix systemic problems like police killing way too many people. And, uh, and so we, we have to kind of recognize where people are coming from, but it, it's always going to point back to training. You know, we have to recognize people's humanity, understand how humans function, and then put in place the proper training to 
to a huge degree counteract those human instincts because police shouldn't be acting like a you know purely instinctual uh, hunter gatherer roaming the savanna uh, you know in, in fight or flight mode right i mean they're, they they have a specific job and that includes assessing situations uh, de-escalating situations so if we have this epidemic of police shootings then you know clearly it's the training that's lacking but th- this all reminds me of uh, something else because i was at a wedding this past weekend i mentioned on the show i was going to this wedding and it was excellent you know everyone i talked to was just you know brilliant and creative in their own way i had all kinds of uh, interesting conversations and one woman i talked to was you know, very interesting she, she was a little bit leaning on the conservative side and we had this you know meandering conversation through all sorts of topics and then we got on to the cops and she said, you know, the cops get way too much criticism, way more than they deserve because, and she works in schools. And so she's coming from the perspective of like, you know, kids and their interactions with, you know, authority figures in school and then also the police. And she's saying, you know, the problem is that the cops don't get as much respect as they deserve. And it's the lack of respect that. It sets them off. I mean, you have to understand that police are just human too. And so when they're being disrespected, then you can only imagine how they would react. And so she's, you know, she's making the cops very fallible, very human, while the kids in question just need to be expected to show respect. And that should be the end of the conversation which totally misunderstands the dynamic of, you know, the power relationship between the police and the policed. It misunderstands what being given power does to an individual, how it changes how they act. It totally misunderstands the the various uh, expectations that should be had for police and how we should actually have higher expectations for the actions of police than, you know, random citizens or students or uh, you know, whoever is coming in contact with the police. Like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I think uh, police should be able to take some disrespect and not snap. How about that? And so, again, it comes back to training, as always. You know, I don't mind recognizing your humanity, but if your humanity is getting in the way of doing your job properly and, in a, you know, in a safe and productive way, in the way that society recognizes police need to function, then we need to train that out of you. And then finally, Chris was uh, talking about his son going to school, and that's very exciting. I got a chance to meet Chris from Colorado Springs and his family when they all came to D.C., and they were exploring the monuments and whatnot, and I went out and hung out with them for a bit, including his son being pushed around in a stroller. And uh, so it's it's exciting to hear that a a fellow introvert is being given the learning experience they need. You know, I grew up as an introvert but didn't really know what that meant until pretty recently – And so it's nice to hear that he's getting his quiet reading time. Uh, I feel like I could have benefited from a lot more than that. And then the question about the Islamic Caliphate, I I say that that is the type of question uh, that the phrase uh, above my pay grade was invented for. So I, I heard the same show that Chris heard about Dan Carlin discussing it. Dan Carlin certainly made it sound like it made sense uh, at the time, though I admit I don't remember all the details. But if anyone else has thoughts on it, I I would be 
more than open to hearing from you. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained